Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, we'll have our usual format for you today. We'll start with a news roundup in which we'll talk about three topics. Uh, first off, in the world of uh, digital home assistants, we'll talk about the story that Amazon may re- uh, release an Echo that has a screen, as well as a story from today that Microsoft is working on its own strategy for this space that seems to be uh, PC-centric rather than dedicated hardware-based uh, secondly, we'll talk about two announcements in the digital video world. First of all, AT&T's uh, long-awaited announcement and launch of DirecTV Now. And secondly, uh, Netflix making downloads available for its service. And then our third news roundup topic will be a story by Bloomberg about Apple using drones for mapping. We'll then move on to our question of the week segment. And our question this week is, should Apple change from a functional organization to a divisional one? And this is prompted by a piece uh, in the last week or so from Matt Iglesias uh, talking, uh, arguing that it should indeed make that change, but it's really tapping into a longer uh, line of thinking about Apple and its somewhat unique organizational structure for a company of its size. So Aaron will be asking, answering excuse me, a set of questions about that. I'll be asking the questions, and we'll talk through some of the pros and cons of that approach and, and try to reach a conclusion on that t- topic. And then our third segment will be a discussion of the state of smartwatches. So there were a couple of stories this week again that fit into this. Uh, Fitbit is reported to be about to acquire Pebble, a smartwatch manufacturer. It was kind of the original smartwatch manufacturer with a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, It's gone through several uh, potential acquisitions, and this one looks like the most likely to actually happen now. Uh, Also this week, though, Motorola seemed to signal that it wasn't going to be making any more Android Wear smartwatches anytime soon. Uh, and so we'll, we'll talk about both of those news items, but we'll also broaden out the conversation to the state of the smartwatch market, wrap in the Apple Watch, uh, the broader state of Fitbit and so on as well. And uh, Aaron will actually be sharing some of his thoughts, having recently tried an Apple Watch for a while and then stopped wearing it again. Uh, so he'll share some of his thoughts on that experience. And then we'll wrap up the episode with a weekly pick in which I'll, I'll recommend a book that I've been uh, enjoying recently. So let's kick off the news roundup with this, these two stories about Amazon Echo, potentially a version with a screen and, and higher-end speakers. And then a story, the story was on Windows Central. It was a, uh, an exclusive, as they claim, uh, on Microsoft's home hub ambitions. So talking about the fact that Microsoft is, is considering a software feature within Windows 10 that would allow you to use Cortana when the screen is locked. So essentially use your PC in place of, say, an Amazon Echo or a Google Home. So Aaron, what was your take on these stories? My first reaction to the to the idea of an Echo having a screen was, well, why not just have a tablet? But I've thought right. about it more, and and I've realized that there's a difference. The if I set a tablet in a particular room in my house, hoping that it would always be there and that I could count on it being there, I would be making a foolish decision, because the way tablets work is they get picked up and moved around. It's like the cordless phones in our house. I can't right. ever know where they're going to be, even if we have charging <laughs> stations in particular places. Yeah, and uh, and so I, I think that answers that question. I think part of the appeal of the Echo is that it's always where you expect it to be, and it sounds mm-hmm. like a silly thing, um, right? Because it's the it's the inverse of portability being a feature. But uh, I, I could see that. I mean, you know, there there's always a question about how far you can get with just an audio only interface, and uh, and I guess we're gonna find out. Right. If if mm-hmm. Amazon actually yeah. launches an Echo with a screen, and we see what what re, what substantial added functionality comes with it, we'll know. We'll have I think we'll have a much better sense of what the boundaries are with uh, audio as an interface. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, I, this is one of my comments on using the Google Home recently was that it would be nice to have a screen sometimes, and, and both the Echo and the Home are at least somewhat dependent on apps that exist on a device with a screen in the form of smartphone apps that are sort of companions for setting them up and then uh, tweaking settings and things like that. And there are definitely cases where you ask for something and it does the wrong thing and you're never quite sure whether it's because it misinterpreted what you said or um, just didn't understand what you said or if it had the wrong response but properly understood what you said. And the screen would allow you to kind of check some of those things. And then there's things like recipes which... You know, people apparently use these devices to look up recipes, but it's kind of useless because you just get a spoken list of uh, ingredients or steps in the recipe, and then that's it. And what you really want is a screen. And so I can, I can see the value in having a screen. I think the downside is that this then becomes less of a straightforward device. It becomes some sort of in-betweener sort of device that combines some of the elements of, say, a smartphone or tablet and some of the elements of what these have historically been. I think one of the, the great strengths of the Echo and the Home is that they are so simple. There's one way to interact with them. You always know what it is, and it works every time as far as actually understanding what you say. Once you start introducing a screen, then you want to start interacting with them in other ways, and they become, in some ways, more complex devices. And so I'm kind of curious to see how that pans out. Some of the same things, of course, apply with this Microsoft approach, where the, these devices do have screens, and there will be an element of using those screens to, to provide responses. Um, this is something that I thought might happen when uh, the Surface Studio was announced because they mentioned that it had uh, a, a, some kind of mic array in there that could hear you from across the room and that sort of seemed to be hinting at sort of using Cortana on one of these devices as a sort of echo equivalent and that now does seem to be a formal plan at Microsoft that's going to roll out from within Windows 10. Um, you know, and there are many people that keep a computer at a certain point in the home and it stays there and you can rely on it being there. but kind of similar to what you said about that, uh, tablets earlier. You know, if it's a laptop or something, it's obviously not going to work as well. Well, and that and Microsoft doesn't really have an entry for voice anywhere else. I, I mean, not, you know, there aren't that many people with Windows phones and there aren't that many. Right. And, you know, they don't have an, an Echo equivalent device to be put elsewhere in the house. And this goes back to the problem we talked about before, where it's unclear yet how much of a how big of a deal it's going to be for consumers to be on a unified voice platform wherever they are, you know, and, and Amazon has had this problem because if you're away from the Echo, you're not using Alexa, right? And Google has, it, Google's actually trying to solve this problem by having the home plus Android devices. Um, you know, Apple's just trusting that you can use your iPad or, or your phone or watch and cover your bases. Microsoft really just has this. Right. I mean, right. And uh, and it's true. A lot of people have computers, you know, in their kitchen, for example. So I could mm -hmm. see it, I, it. It definitely feels like a feature that people were going to use, but it doesn't feel at all like a complete solution. Right. Yeah. No, it'll be very interesting. I mean, they, they do have a couple of 100 million people using Cortana within Windows already. So there's a starting point there. But to your point, it disappears as functionality once you leave that computer at home or whatever. So that's going to be the challenge there as it is for Amazon. Um, let's talk about that second set of stories then. This is the launch of DirecTV now, which is uh, DirecTV is now owned by AT&T, it's a satellite provider. AT&T has been using the DirecTV brand as their sort of video brand going forward. And so this is an over-the-top style service similar to Sling TV and Sony PlayStation View uh, and some others. Um, this is sort of a pay TV replacement of a sort. Although, you know, once again, they're not positioning it as that. They're positioning it as something for cord cutters, people who've never had a pay TV service but have a broadband connection. Um, and it offers a variety of different bundles at different price points, different numbers of channels. Uh, the local broadcast channels, with the exception of CBS, are 
theoretically a part of it, but they only offered where uh, the, the companies own the local stations. So there are only sort of 20 or so markets where that's the case. And so here in Utah, for example, the, the local stations are all unavailable. Um, the other story was Netflix introducing downloads. So it's always been a streaming service, but you can now, uh, within the, the smartphone and tablet apps, download episodes and uh, watch those on a plane, on a train, wherever else you might be. So those are kind of two stories in this space uh, that's sort of about evolving this digital video space and moving it forward. Aaron, what was your take here? Um, I, you know, the DirecTV Now package was really exciting for me for about a minute. <laughs> and then it just felt like it wasn't fully baked, so I think my excitement was tempered. I, I'm, I'm certainly not writing it off, but but there's there's still a lot that's unknown and uncertain about that. And so... In fact, I think the channel lineup wasn't even announced the same day. Isn't that right? And mm -hmm. so that's right. Yeah, it, it was, was hard to find. Certainly, it was a weird thing. In fact, I I had the same problem you mentioned on Twitter. I clicked on a link to get more information, and it was prompted for a password. Right. <laughs> thought, yeah. I don't know how to log in to get your marketing mm -hmm. information. I guess so. Right. Um, yeah. It was so. So I don't know. I mean, on that. I mean, the, the reality is, I'm encouraged just by the existence of another over-the-top service because mm -hmm. that's where this has to go. I'm, I've been, and I say that because I've been a cord cutter for years, and uh, and I'm excited because I think, th you know, the more people are, that are entering the over-the-top space, the more sane I think TV subscriptions and access to programming is going to get. So. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think I think that's a cool thing. I you know I'm not going John Gruber with this one, but with the Netflix uh, allowing you to download shows, and it's not everything. It's you know they mm -hmm. have to have deals like Disney stuff you can't download. Um, right. But uh, but that said, you know echoing John Gruber, if there's ever been an appropriate use of the word, finally this is it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've had plenty. I mean, you know, just traveling situations like on international flights or traveling internationally, there have been times I wish I could have downloaded Netflix content but couldn't. Right. So I think that's great. You know, I think one other thing we should have thrown into this roundup is the is the DVR pilot that Sling is going to be doing. Um, mm. And it only works with Roku boxes yeah. uh, as, a, as a pilot, as a beta test. But... Um, the DVR functionality is the main reason I haven't signed up for Sling. Otherwise, I would have tried mm -hmm. it out a lot sooner. But yeah. I just, you know, I time shifting is is I've been a TiVo user for years and years, and so time shifting is right. just part of how I watch TV. And mm -hmm. and so as soon as they get the as soon as they get the DVR functionality onto the Apple TV, which is the device I would be using to watch it on my TV at home, then mm -hmm. then I'll I'll definitely give it a try because I you know. The TiVo subscription service, like the monthly fee you pay just for TiVo, is even with over-the-air channels, mm -hmm. that'd be most of the cost of a Sling subscription. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I signed up for Directv now, partly to try it, and partly because I am a cord cutter, and so it's you know been one of, it'll be the latest of several things that I've tried, and I've, I've been a Sling user for a while as well, and. Um, there's lots that I like about it, like the interface a lot better than the Sling interface, for example. Um, but it's glitchy, and other people have been saying this too, that it times out, stops playing content for no particular reason, you can't get it to restart playing it again. Um, some other weird issues, can't get it to work on my Mac, I had to download Silverlight to get it working, but it just buffers endlessly and then stops, basically. So I've had all kinds of issues like that. Um, but you know, in principle, it seems good, but again, the local channels are missing. So to the extent that you'd like to watch any kind of uh, live content on local channels like football games or whatever, then you're out of luck there if you don't live in one of the markets where they support it. CBS is missing, as is Showtime, as is CW. 
so any of the shows that you like to watch on those channels, you won't be able to get through this and you have to get a separate subscription uh, or a separate app at the very least. Um, Netflix downloads, though, like you, seems you know a very useful additional feature to me. It's, it's not the kind of thing that's going to get a massive numbers of new subscribers, but it, it's one less reason to use you know iTunes or something like that, you know, and one of the reasons I still have used iTunes quite a bit for movies and TV shows is that you can download things ahead of time, take them with you on a plane or whatever. Um, you know, this will be one less reason to use those things. And that's obviously, you know, a long-standing trend anyway, but it just can, again raises the question of when Apple's going to do some kind of subscription content service of its own or if it's going to just keep relying on others to do that for it. Um, speaking of Apple then, uh, let's move on to this last news roundup topic, which is Apple using drones potentially to augment its mapping data. And obviously uh, they've been driving vans around with cameras on and, and various other things already. They've been working on generating their own mapping data for some time now. Drones have interesting advantages over satellite imagery in that you can get down much closer to buildings, you could get more detail potentially, but you can get different angles as well rather than just the overhead view that you get with satellite. And obviously Apple already has what it calls a flyover view for a lot of cities and this could potentially help with that. Um, they've also acquired some technology to do indoor mapping, which is something that most of the map services don't do a lot of yet. Google does some of it. Um, but that could get very interesting, could get even more interesting as people have uh, phones with two cameras in them and can do some of their own interesting imagery for indoor mapping and that kind of thing. So this seems like an interesting trend too. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it was only a matter of time before drones started getting involved in mapping services, um, especially because you can automate the. It seems like you'd be able to automate the vast majority of what the drone would actually be, be doing. You would need a pilot to run it around over, mm -hmm. you know, whatever area is being mapped. I, I hope it's also a way for mapping to be more up to date, but I'm not sure how the economies of scale work with that. Like, I don't know how many mm -hmm. drones you need to be running and how frequently. I mean, the the planet's pretty dang big, and uh, right. you know, even a city is big. And you know, the problem with flying a drone closer to the ground versus a satellite being way up in the sky is the drone sees less, and so it has right. to run back and forth more. Anyway, I mean, I I'm I'm opining as a complete non-expert about the technical hurdles <laughs> of this, but uh, but like I said, I think it seemed inevitable. I'm, it, you know, I, I the the cultural thing is going to be the interesting question. I mean, the way people have reacted to Google Street View cars um, as violations of privacy when they first started rolling mm -hmm. out was really interesting. It's going to be, I, I think, it's going to feel even more invasive if it's a drone with a camera flying over your house. Right. So right. I, yeah. I think you can count on at least one or two stories of Apple drones getting shot down with shotguns. So. <laughs> yes, especially over those parts of the country where people actually have shotguns, right? That's right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Okay, good. Well, let's move on to our question of the week. Um, and as I said at the top, our question of the week this week is, should Apple change from a functional organization to a divisional one? And uh, the trigger here was a piece by Matt Iglesias, which I'm sure Aaron will talk us through a little bit more. But uh, this is not certainly the first time somebody suggested that Apple's organizational structure is perhaps the wrong one for this stage in its history. Um, ben Thompson, a fellow analyst, uh, has had at least a couple of pieces about um, structural uh, organizational structures over time and, and has talked about Apple specifically uh, in the past as well. But um, it's, this is a broader question than just one or two pieces. This is a, a big question with Apple, which has a somewhat unique organizational structure for a company of its size. And so we're just going to talk about the pros and cons. We're going to talk a bit about these different potential structures that companies can have and why some are generally considered to be better for large companies and, and why that does or doesn't apply to Apple at this point. So 
Aaron's been reading up on this this week and uh, we'll be answering the questions here. So Aaron, why don't we start by just having you give us a review of this whole sort of functional versus divisional issue. What, what's this really about and kind of what's the history here on this topic? Sure. This is actually a decades old management dilemma. Um, every company, when it grows, has to decide how it organizes, um, and that's because the founders can't do everything, and so they need to rely on others to do things within the company. By the time companies get pretty big, the challenge is how do you organize in a way that everybody can get the work done that they need to in the most efficient, most effective way. Um, and, and there are a bunch of different ways to sort of look at a firm and, and, and people have been writing about this, uh, academics have been writing for decades about the optimal organizational strategies and, and sort of categorizing firms by different criteria like central versus uh, centralized versus decentralized and so forth. Functional versus divisional is another way to look at this and is essentially the basic idea. And I'm not going to spend too much time explaining this because Iglesias does a good job of it, Ben Thompson does a good job of it, and I suspect a lot of our listeners are familiar with this concept anyway. But the basic idea is that you can organize your company around its products and each product has a division assigned to it. And in that division are all the necessary elements for it to essentially be a standalone business. So a division is going to have not only the engineers or other you know, people building the product, but it's also going to have its own marketing team. And it's probably also going to have its own accounting team, its own HR group. And so in its purest form, a divisional structure is essentially all the different businesses of, of a single company divvied up into their own into their own entities within the within the firm and in fact Iglesias in his article gives an example of a really extreme version of this which is Berkshire Hathaway um, you know Berkshire Hathaway essentially owns and but doesn't actually operate a bunch of different businesses all the businesses just do their own thing they they operate as independent separate businesses really in this sense divisions um, and Berkshire Hathaway has a small centralized office at the top that just oversees the investments. Um, so that's the divisional approach. And uh, the functional approach is different in that you essentially organize your company around skill sets or expertise. So you have one marketing uh, function that serves the entire company. You have one engineering function that serves the entire company. Um, and... The idea is that when you have divisions, each division can kind of report on its own profits and losses. Excuse me, and that's and uh, that's not true for a functional organization because you can't report on the profits and losses of the marketing function. Right. Nor can you report on that for for any other any other part of the business. And so, a functional firm, it's typically smaller comp smaller firms are functional to start because they have a small number of products and maybe even just one product. And so that's how they organize. But as the as the business grows and as they get more products and they get into more different businesses, that's when firms generally gravitate toward a divisional approach. Now, that's not universally true, um, and it actually hasn't even been universally true for a long time. There's a, there's a sort of organizational classic. Uh, piece on this topic called Organizational Choice Product Versus Function is written by Walker and Lorsch and published in Harvard Business Review and that goes all the way back to 1968. Um, and even then, you know, people have been even when this piece was written in 68, people have been, managers have been struggling for decades with, with how to make this choice. Um, the, 
the the consensus wisdom at the time was that you make this choice based on three criteria, um, and, and Walker and Lorsch review those. They say which approach permits the maximum use of specialized knowledge. So how do you so how do you make sure that your experts can really focus on their expertise and not get distracted by, by other things that a divisional approach brings, like having to worry about a, a you know profit and loss statement or HR needs for for your division. Um, which which of these provides the most efficient utilization of machinery and equipment? This is an important question. And 68 is a bigger deal because big firms tended to be manufacturers. Uh, it's still a problem uh, today for firms, though. And if it's not utilization of machinery and equipment, it might be of other aspects of human capital besides technical knowledge. And then finally, which provides the best hope for obtaining the required control and coordination? And this is one of the interesting challenges is, is not just the control. Uh, divisions tend to be, operate with relative independence from each other in a company. And the top management essentially works with the bosses of each division. But it makes coordination hard, and that's the other interesting question here, is if you ever need a division to coordinate with another division, how do you pull that off? Um, they, they, those are useful. Walker and Lars extend on those, and they, they go into behavioral research to point out that uh, the, one of the problems with a functional versus a divisional approach is that there are cultural effects. And the cultural effects are something you need to pay a lot of attention to. Um, in fact, what they find is that, uh, is that employees feel more empowered, for example, in divisions. And so if you're in a division, you feel more empowered because you feel like you're kind of the master of your own fate. You don't have mm -hmm. to rely on some other function that's being managed all the way up to the top, you know, where you don't really have a voice anymore. Um, on the other hand, willingness to collaborate goes down when you have divisional approaches because divisions actually get pretty culturally distinct from each other. Right. And working together, collaborating on anything could be hard because a, a one division has a different culture than the other division has. And so collaboration is difficult. Apple, for its part, has always said we, we prefer the functional approach because there's a lot of collaboration and we're going to get into that in a bit. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so that's all the way back to 1968. If we fast forward, I think some of the more interesting things that have been said or written about this topic. Uh, one is from uh, Ben Thompson, who you mentioned. Um, ben actually wrote two great pieces on this back in 2013 when Microsoft uh, announced a, a functional-oriented uh, restructuring under Steve Ballmer. Um, he actually went at it a bit critically, Thompson did, because he mm -hmm. felt like it was sort of ignoring the value of what divisional approaches can do and and also criticizing the culture within Microsoft, hearkening all the way back to that Walker and Lorsch piece, criticizing that the culture within Microsoft wasn't set up to do very well in a functional approach. Mm -hmm. um, right. And so that's a really great piece for also giving you a lot of great insights uh, about that. Um, another place you turn, although it's, it's, it's not really condensed in one part of the book, but Adam Lashinsky wrote the book Inside Apple uh, a few years back, um, essentially giving kind of key insights into how Apple managed, how Apple has managed, and what makes it unique as a company. It is a fantastic read, and I really would recommend it to anybody. Um, but uh, he sort of peppered in a couple different spots is is an explanation of Apple's approach to operating as a functional company and why it makes them so unique based on their size of a company. Um, and then that brings us up current to, oh, I should mention that back in April, uh, Ben Thompson also wrote a piece um, questioning Apple's functional approach because of their new reliance on services. 
and kind of arguing that services may not be amenable to a functional approach. And then that brings us up today with the Iglesias piece. Just a quick summary of of Iglesias's complaint about Apple's structure. It's it's really it's spurred on by the neglect issue of Apple neglecting the Mac, abandoning you know its airport Wi-Fi routers, um, abandoning displays. Um, his basic point is this that that if Apple, based on it, the size of its resources, I mean, it's a very wealthy company, if Apple, based on the size of its resources, can't keep these products going, then it's not a problem, that, that it's a management problem. I mean, these are profitable products. The airport base stations just got ranked as the best routers by J.D. Power, I think. <laughs> it was after it was leaked by... Um, by Bloomberg that they were going to discontinue those. <laughs> they, mm. Then they then they got this this accolade right. of being the best routers on the market. Um, you know, if Apple can't keep these small but profitable businesses going, it's not an issue with them not having the resources to keep them going in financially. The problem is not having the resources in terms of management bandwidth. Mm-hmm. And Iglesias's point is Apple, if they adopted a more divisional approach, could have managers over those divisions making those choices, keeping things like the Mac Pro updated, and then they wouldn't have these problems. So that, right. that kind of brings us up to date on on the concept and, and how people have talked about it relative to Apple. Okay. So from what you've said, it sounds like the conventional wisdom is that huge companies need to be divisional in structure. Um, you know, Apple, by market cap at least, is the biggest company in the world. So I guess it logically follows in that sense that Apple should be divisional. So why isn't it, I guess? And is is that still the right thing? Yeah. And with that, I, I'm going to challenge the premise of the question because it, it's I don't think Apple is a huge company in the way that matters when you're making the functional versus divisional choice. Um and, and I'll kind of start by making the point that Apple, as a as as its size as an employer is concerned is relatively small compared to other companies of its size. Um, uh, Iglesias in his piece uh, turns to GE and he, he uses GE as an example of a big company that operates in a divisional way. And uh, you know it, he gives the example that they build jet engines and tidal farms and, and freight rail data systems, uh, medical devices and mining equipment. And these are all examples that he gives. And they all, all those operate as separate divisions within GE. Um, well, GE also employs 333,000 people globally. Um, uh, Apple, for its part, employs 116,000. That actually puts it on par with Microsoft that last I checked had about 114,000. Um, even those numbers are deceptive, though, comparing Microsoft to Apple in terms of employee, number of employees because Apple has 48,000 employees in retail. Right. And, and we're going to get to retail in a minute, but what that really means is that Apple has just about 68,000 corporate employees and of those, about 20,000 are customer support. So when you have the people actually like creating, marketing, designing, and launching the products that Apple makes, you're really looking at about 48,000 employees. And compare that again to the 333,000 at, at GE, 114,000 at Microsoft. Now, obviously, Microsoft has support staff just like Apple does, and, and GE does too, sort of. I mean, they don't have that many consumer-facing products, um, but... Uh, but the point is, is that um, the, the the point is, is that uh, Apple 
it, by employment size is small. The problem is that their revenue is huge, and that's what makes them look like a bigger company than they are if you're thinking about them as an employer. Um, in fact, a really interesting measure uh, about firm efficiency um, that in the last decade has become more popular is, revenue, is measuring revenue per employee. Um, GE pulls in about 420000 annually per employee. Now, these numbers fluctuate, obviously, a lot based on, you know, quarterly earning reports. But, but these, are, these, these numbers will give you at least rough ranges. Um, GE, uh, when I pulled this, this, is all from 2015 uh, annual revenue. GE makes 420000 per employee. Microsoft makes 730000 per employee. Apple makes $1.8 per employee. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a huge right. difference. And again, it shows that Apple is not a huge company relative to these other big ones as far as it being an employer is concerned. So, so, so that's the first point I want to make is that, you know, this, this idea that Apple is, is huge doesn't really describe it totally, the situation accurately. The other complaint I have is that Apple is not actually purely functional as a company they're they're remarkably functional for a company of their size like surprisingly functional but in their org structure but they're not purely functional uh, every product for example within apple that i'm aware of has mar has dedicated marketing people there there is some centrally coordinated marketing obviously in fact they've even pulled advertising inside right um in the last year or two but but uh but but you know i've i've known and met the iMovie marketing director for example I mean, they had a dedicated person for marketing iMovie, and and uh, and Apple continues to have uh, these functional roles, but not set, but not collected into functional units. And so there are marketing roles dispersed throughout the company like that, based on the products. There are also project managers, obviously, that are dispersed throughout these pro products. Um, uh, another thing that I think makes them feel more divisional is that within Apple, you know, the idea of a functional organization is that everybody can collaborate with each other really easily, whereas Apple is notorious for privacy about what teams are working on. They actually forbid collaboration unless the people at the top say it's okay. And so in this sense, Apple actually behaves much more divisionally because teams aren't even allowed to talk about what they're working on when they're at Cafe Mac eating lunch. They, they only are allowed to talk about this stuff in their dedicated office space. And so, so finally, the, the last thing that's really important to point out is that retail, and even Iglesias acknowledges this in his article, retail at Apple is essentially a division. I mean, there's, there's very little to coordinate on. Um, I mean, retail essentially sells the products that Apple makes. Um, and uh, and its, its employees are treated differently in a lot of ways. It's it's it, it manages its real estate holdings, um, you know, under the retail uh, unit uh, uh, construction, um, you know, anytime. Like basically, there's a lot within the retail unit that is much more divisional like. And if you put that in perspective, that's, you know, a third of Apple's employees that are that fit in that category. And so um, the idea that. Apple is a purely functional company is not an accurate description. So they're not huge in the way we think about huge like GE. And they're not actually purely functional uh, in the way that uh, I think people describe them, you know, much, uh, much more philosophically than in reality. 
Um, I, I do need to acknowledge finally at the end that Apple is pretty functional at the top, though, um, uh, because it's really at the top where Apple does all the things that a functional company does. Top managers decide where and how teams coordinate. Um, in fact, they, uh, they, they often do it in a way that employees don't even know is going to happen. Um, it, managers at Apple complain about losing top people to mysterious projects. All of this is being coordinated by the executive team. Um, individual product teams, like we mentioned, don't have their own profit and loss statements. You don't know how much revenue is attributed to Siri. Um, that's a kind of a classic example that you read people talking about and that Tim Cook has even talked about. Um, you won't know how much money is made, um, you know, by uh, so any of the software teams. Uh, you won't know how much money is made by the teams that design the speakers that go into the various products. Um, you know, those speaker teams, from my understanding, work in different work on different products all across the hardware lines. Um, meaning, there's not a speaker engineer dedicated just to the iPhone. Um, and and, uh, and product, all product design is 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 centralized. Apple has a you know, based on what I've heard from people I've known who work there, and also what I've read, Adam Lashinsky's book is really good at this. Um, you know, stuff gets worked on by Apple engineers. And then an engineer comes up with a cool idea. His manager says, yeah, work on it for a little while. And then whatever that engineer has developed sort of gets pushed up the line and evaluated by the design team. And so the product design is very centralized under Johnny Ive and his staff. And the executive team generally just kind of decides, yeah, we're going to stick this feature in and that feature you can keep working on. And this one we decided we don't need, so stop working on it. And so in that sense, it is very functional because all that is done at the top. I think the biggest observation to make about Apple um, uh, when it comes to this is that it's not as simple as you think. Um, you know, they're not this sort of purely platonic, you know, this platonic ideal of a functional company. That's just not true. So then the ultimate question is still the same one, which is, you know, should Apple become, you know, a divisional structured company, you know, would it benefit from a shift from functional to divisional as this piece suggests? So that's the funny thing about Iglesias' piece, right, is that he doesn't actually make the case that Apple would benefit from a divisional approach. Instead, he makes the case that there are specific groups of Apple customers that would benefit. Right. I mean, if you've been waiting, okay. right. if you've been waiting for the Mac Pro to get updated, you wish that Apple had a divisional approach. Because then there would be a head of the Mac Pro unit who would have made sure that there was an update pushed out, you know, two years ago and then last year and then again this year. And, uh, and, and so if you're a customer that wanted a Mac Pro, you wish that was true. It's not clear that Apple would benefit by having a divisional approach just so they could keep the Mac Pro updated. It's true that they would sell more Mac Pros, but that doesn't tell us anything about whether or not it maxim it's, that that's the approach that maximizes Apple's uh abilities and outcomes as a company. I mean, that's a right. much bigger question, and that's the, that's the point that Iglesias never actually makes. He never says Apple would be a better company if it had a divisional approach. Instead, he says there are groups of Apple customers who would be happier if Apple had a divisional approach. He doesn't say it that way, but it's what he really is saying in the article. Right. Um, it, the divisional approach really means separate businesses. That's what it means, and that's what I was talking about at the top of this uh, segment. Separate businesses mean separate customers. 
Right. I mean, GE has customers for aerospace. It has customers in energy. It has customers in mining. It has customers in medical. Microsoft even has two large customer groups. It has consumers and it has IT professionals. Um, Apple doesn't really have separate customers. And I know this is going to sound crazy when I say it, so let me explain a little bit before any of the listeners jump to a conclusion that I don't know what I'm talking about. When it, when it comes down to it, all of Apple's customers are personal computing users, every single one. It doesn't matter if you're buying an iPad or an iPhone or a watch or a Mac. You are, you are a customer of personal computing. And, and that's what Apple is, is a personal computing company that, that just has all these different products serving that one customer of personal computing. Now, it's true, different customers have different preferences. And that's what, they, that's what Apple's product lineup is all about. Is, is offering all these different products and services to personal computing users. But in the end, that's who they, that's its customer, is a personal computing user. And, and so that's not a separate business. That's fundamentally at its core one business. It's very different than, in fact, Apple doesn't offer servers anymore, right? Because those were to not personal computing users, but to, uh, but to um, IT pros. And that's a, that's a customer and a business that Apple shed a long time ago. Um, and so it, because Apple doesn't really have separate customers, it, it, you can't say that they have separate businesses in this big sense, not separate in the way that aerospace and mining and medical are separate businesses with separate customers. Um, and so what we're probably actually seeing with Apple dropping airports and displays and neglecting the Mac is cannibalization and focus, just like there's always been. Um, within the company. Um, in fact, this is all really epitomized by the way Steve Jobs, when he got to Apple, killed the Newton and killed printers. And there were a lot of people who were really mad about both of those things, but those people were, they, they were, uh, they, they were uh, just individual customers within the personal computing space who were annoyed with what that choice Apple was making. No different today than the people who were mad about Apple not updating the Mac Pro. There's a small avid customer base, right, um, within the within the business of personal computing. And Apple just said, hey, we're better off spending our time elsewhere. Same is true for routers, displays, and, and the Mac. And, and uh, I think what's different, though, between then and now is that back then, the Newton was a small, very small business by any measure. In fact, I don't think it was even making money. But uh, today, neglecting the Mac... Uh, even just neglecting the Mac Pro or abandoning wife, you know, it's airport base stations. Um, that feels big because those are not small businesses. Those are big. But the reality is they're small compared to iPhone. When you look at the iPhone in terms of number of units and in terms of revenue for Apple, the Mac Pro is pretty small potatoes. And it makes sense that Apple wouldn't want to put a bunch of its effort and energy into keeping that updated um, because the way we talked about all the design choices being made at the top, that's taking away bandwidth from, you know, uh, Johnny Ive and his designers, for example, or from Tim Cook and his operations people. So I, I don't know, without knowing with, with certainty where Apple is headed next, you know, whether it's, it's uh, you know, continuing to develop and, and, and broaden this category of personal computing or if it's headed into cars or whatever, it's really actually pretty hard for us to know and argue that Apple would benefit from a divisional approach because we're essentially asking the question is, is this the best, is this the best Apple to, to have all these different divisions, to have the Mac Pro have a boss who keeps it updated and selling it to customers? We can't know that that's actually the best use of Apple's resources. If I wanted an updated Mac Pro, that's what I would say. 
but I'm not sure right. I can make that argument perfectly. Yeah. And so, you know, it, and, and here's another point is even if Apple has lost its way, right, which some pe which people have always been saying, but they're saying it now, just like before, if Apple has lost its way and it's not really producing or won't over the next decade produce what we have grown accustomed to them producing in terms of innovative, new, exciting products, even then that's not actually a critique of the functional approach. That's a critique of their management. Right, mm -hmm. that's basically saying the people at the top of this functional structure aren't doing a good enough job of using it to push out new, awesome, profitable products. Right. And so it does still doesn't say whether or not Apple should be a functional or divisional company primarily. It just mm -hmm. says that the, the, the executive management at the top of this functional structure isn't doing its job well. Right, so, right. I don't yeah, know. Good point. In, in the end, every company is the sum of its parts. GE and Berkshire, mm -hmm. the, they sum themselves up by agglomeration of all these different businesses and the profits that they produce. Apple's is the sum of its parts with this core product of, of personal computing and the profits flow from it just like everything else. I, I don't know. So, so I mean, the, this is terrible. But the question, should Apple change from a functional organization to a divisional one? We don't know. Because <laughs> the counter, because the counterfactual is 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 too hard to predict with accuracy. So, mm -hmm. like I said, if you're a customer that's feeling neglected right now, the argument you're making really is Apple should be divisional to benefit me, not necessarily to benefit the company. Right. Yeah, it feels like a feels like a pretty good summary. And and I like the point you make too about the people in charge too, like whatever your organizational structure is, if you have great people running it or if you have terrible people running it, probably makes at least as much difference. And so um, whatever you believe is the case right now with Apple, you know, that has a big effect. Um, you know, whether you think Tim Cook is, is largely making the right decisions or wrong ones, um, you know, is at least as important as whether the structure he has to work with is functional or divisional. Well, thanks, Aaron. That's that's been a great sure. overview of of the topic and and some good ways of thinking about it. Even if we didn't come to a conclusive answer about <laughs> right. whether whether the answer is yes or no. Maybe we should go back and um, edit this and put that at the top so we don't have anybody. There we go. <laughs> I don't know what the podcasting equivalent of clickbait is, but uh, <laughs> right. hopefully this won't be considered that. Um, well, let's move on to our third segment, and this will be a brief conversation. But uh, the state of smartwatches, and again, the hooks here are the report that Fitbit will buy Pebble. Uh, at least what's left of Pebble, and ultimately shut it down and, and use the IP and potentially the software and so on. Um, secondly, the Motorola has signaled that it won't be making any more Android Wear smartwatches anytime soon, which is notable because Motorola made the Moto 360, which was one of the more compelling early Android Wear smartwatches. And then we wanted to just talk about Apple Watch in the context of this as well, because we're really talking about the state of smartwatches generally, not just uh, these other flavors of them. So um, just to start with the Fitbit Pebble story, I mean, there's Fitbit's own state as well, and, and Fitbit is relatively new to the smartwatch space. They've been in the fitness wearable space for quite some time now, but have more recently released several products that look more like watches and therefore I think can be considered part of the smartwatch space. But of course, as Apple focuses more on health and fitness aspects with its own watches, uh, the two come into direct competition regardless of how Fitbit sees itself. Um, Pebble clearly is a smartwatch manufacturer and it's a big Kickstarter campaign that uh, started uh, the first Pebble products and, and subsequent ones as well. So, um, you know, these, these are companies that have participated in this space, but they, they seem to be struggling. You know, Fitbit 
And GoPro, I kind of see somewhat similarly. GoPro struggles are bigger, as we've talked about before, but they have to some extent the same problem, which is they seem to have a somewhat limited addressable market. They seem to be maxing out that addressable market. Um, they seem to be struggling to expand out of that market. And, uh, and at the same time now, Fitbit's trying to acquire Pebble, which itself has struggled to grow beyond its initial fairly small size, even as the market as a whole has kind of gone mainstream. Uh, Android Wear has seemed to be kind of stuck for quite some time now. You know, it again, was out there pretty early on uh, before the Apple Watch was released. Uh, but the devices have never seemed all that compelling. And uh, the market share has remained small. Samsung's had by far the largest share, but a lot of its share is based on Tizen rather than Android Wear. Um, and uh, meanwhile, we have the Apple Watch, which, you know, vaulted in its first year to, I think, second in the overall uh, premium watch space in terms of revenue among manufacturers, uh, but you know whose sales have been tiny in comparison to you know the other major Apple product lines. So you know sort of mixed bag there. But Aaron, Aaron, what's your sort of take on all of this and sort of the state of where we are? You know, I um, I, I, I don't know where the Fitbit Pebble thing could go, where Fitbit couldn't have gone on its own. Um, I know. I mean, there's a there's a tiny, tiny sliver of really of people who love Pebble and kind of did from the beginning. Uh, and and I mean, to put this into context, it's notable because Pebble is such a notable and unique company and a, definitely a trailblazer in this space. But this is a relatively small acquisition. I, in fact, TechCrunch is reporting that it's happening for forty million dollars. Right. And so this is pretty pretty tiny. I've, I know that Fitbit had, or sorry Pebble had wanted a lot more previously when it was shopping itself around, um, uh, you know, more in the hundreds of millions uh, range. But but it definitely sounds like, you know, it, it definitely feels like Fitbit is buying a company that's well on its way out the door. Right. In fact, I joked on Twitter, you know, that um, whoever ends up buying Fitbit is going to get Pebble thrown in and won't that be convenient? Um, because... Uh, you know, it saves somebody the hassle of having to actually do the work to buy Pebble. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. yeah. I, don't know. I mean, it's sad, it's tragic, but but this is so true in every new product space. You know, sometimes being first to the space the way that Pebble really was is is actually the bad thing, not the good thing, because you're not learning right. from anybody else's mistakes. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, that I think, you know, Pebble is the one who's paid the price for trailblazing in this space so that other people could take advantage of what Pebble figured out. Um, you know, the category generally doesn't feel like it's ever going to get very big to me. Um, mm. I feel like it would have, with with all the effort Apple's put into this, um, and they're clearly now the biggest player in the wearable space, um, even though you, you know, biggest in the sense that they're probably making the most money doing it. Um, I don't know. It just it doesn't feel like it's ever going to get very big. It, it it feels like by now, with with Google working on it, with Apple working on it, with uh, you know Fitbit having been doing this now for a long time, it just feels like as a if it was going to be big, in the sense that you would expect to see a lot more of these devices on people's wrists, it just feels like it would have happened by now. Somebody would have figured out what it is that makes this so compelling to most people, and I just don't think it is. I, in fact, I saw on Twitter, and you might have been the one who retweeted this, but somebody on Twitter pointed out that roughly a third of Fitbit devices are not actually bought by the person wearing it, right? These, mm, are, bought yeah. as, these are bought as gifts. Mm -hmm. And, man, if, if there's something that speaks to the customer desirability of a product, it's that, 
right? Because right. the idea is if you're buying a Fitbit for somebody, you're saying, hey, you're too fat, right? And you need this product. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and hopefully that's a shared perspective. But but mm -hmm. why aren't the people who need to lose weight the ones, you know, why aren't, why isn't that 95% of the, of the customer base? Why isn't it those mm -hmm. people buying the products for themselves? Yeah. And so, and, and you've talked and written about this before, about how, you know, a lot of people, like Fitbit doesn't retain its customers. Right. People don't keep wearing these devices. And yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, that's in the fitness side. And from the watch side that, you know, Apple has positioned this increasingly as the watch as a fitness device. Right. right. I mean, that seems to be where they're focusing. Mm -hmm. um, that's what the later, that's what the series two was all about was improving its functions as a fitness device, making it waterproof, mm -hmm. having GPS. And, uh, and that seems to be dragging the watch, the smartwatch as a category back into fitness wearables rather than striking it out on its own and saying, watches are this much better for all these reasons. So, right. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting to me. I mean, this is, I think over time we'll still probably see the category morph into something more than it is now, but it does feel like what we've actually seen so far is a narrowing. And, and I think the Apple Watch is the best exemplification of this in that started out, you know, sort of a small version of the iPhone to some extent, and it's narrowed significantly to something that's basically a watch first and foremost and has health and fitness features as a major selling point uh, and as a differentiator against other watches. And then, you know, Yes does some apps and has some good stuff to do with notifications and glanceable information and so on. And so, you know, to the extent that that is now the market, that feels a lot narrower than the original conception of it. Um, and within that, Apple is dominating uh, that part of the space. And there are other flavors here. There are the pure fitness devices that Fitbit mostly specializes in. Uh, and then there are some sort of basic smartwatches that don't do much beyond um, either fitness tracking or, or notifications by themselves. Um, but, you know, I do wonder to what extent, too, this is going to be about a subset of the watch market. And I thought your experience here was quite interesting. Um, so Aaron recently borrowed um, my Generation 1 Apple Watch um, for a few weeks and uh, had a chance to use that. And I, I found his take interesting as somebody who, who hadn't worn a watch for many years. So Aaron, do you want to talk about that a bit? Sure. I, I didn't wear one for 15 years before I borrowed um, that watch from you. And it was a really good experience to be able to borrow it and wear it for, I think I had it for about three weeks, three and a half weeks, and then decided, you know, before I made a purchasing decision, I wanted to go without it after having gotten used to it. And, you know, there are, there are definitely things I miss. Um, I miss having really convenient access to notifications while I'm driving. Um, and I don't spend a ton of time in the car, but when I do and my phone buzzes in my pocket, um, you know, it's so instinctive to pull it out and check what was going on. And for safe driving, I generally don't. But, but uh, you know, having it on your wrist right there next to the steering wheel, it's, that, that was really cool. But on the, the flip side of that is I really like not being harangued as much by notifications as I felt like I was before. And maybe that mm. feeling came because I didn't, fine-tuned notifications well enough in the three weeks. I did try to cut way back, um, but I, I don't know. I, I felt a sense of relief and freedom not having a watch buzzing, drawing my attention to stuff. And I know notifications is one of the things you really like about the watch. Um, yeah. I think if I were to get one uh, in the end, I would have to dial it way back. Um, I did love the fitness features. Um, 
I loved it for morning workouts. It was really cool to be able to see my heart rate as I was working out because that was something that I had never, I, I never used a heart rate monitor or anything else like that. And so it was, I think that was really instructive because I think it gave me a much better sense of how hard I was working. But, uh, um, but that just felt like kind of a, gee, isn't that cool kind of thing. Um, right. When I go for runs, I've always brought my phone. I have a flip belt, which I've, I've recommended as a, as a pick of the week, as a weekly pick before. And, and so, and I found my, and you know, even when I ran with the watch that I borrowed, I was running with my phone even then. And so, I, so at the fitness features were like, cool. Um, I didn't love getting annoyed about the activity circles. Um, and most of the time I, I did, I just, if I wasn't going to hit a circle, I just ignored it. Um, so I, I feel less bothered <laughs> on a day-to-day -day basis now that I'm not wearing a watch, but there's also stuff that I really liked. And so I'm on the fence about whether or not I end up buying one of these mm. down the road. I think I might sit around for another generation. I, I think the, yeah. the, the, the experience has got me thinking about it though. I was just thinking about this this morning. I think there is one place where wearables would have a unique value proposition, but they're missing the ecosystem to make it work, and that's controlling the physical devices and objects around us. I think a watch is an incredibly would be an incredibly useful thing if I had a really robust smart home setup. You know what I mean? So that I could easily mm -hmm. turn on and off lights, um, uh, you know, do any number of other things. If I could unlock my car by you know tapping a thing on my watch, if I could. Um, you know, I don't know, it just feels like there are a lot of other things. If I could, I guess I could change the temperature because I do have smart thermostat. But but the idea is I think, I think controlling the physical things around you, the convenience of having a watch for that, feel a wearable for that, feels like it would be truly important. The problem is, is most of the stuff around us isn't smart and connected. It's dumb and disconnected. And until that time comes... Uh, you know, that sort of exciting proposition of having this like ultimate remote control for everything on your wrist. Um, you know, that's just not there. Right, right. No, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, it's obviously very different from my experience, but you know, this is the point. The, the experience that I've had is not one that's going to be universal, and, and you know, neither is yours, but uh, you know, we're probably representative of two broad groups and uh, and there are others as well and this is the point is this is not a universal device in the way that say a smartphone is uh, not even perhaps in the way that the tablet is I mean, the tablet wasn't universal but it still had very broad appeal and uh, one of its main strengths was it was very adaptable to different use cases whereas I think the smartwatch has a fairly narrow set of use cases and they're not for everyone um, and I think that's a big difference and an important one um, but yeah, it does feel like Android Wear is basically going to go by the wayside unless, and I think this is increasingly likely, Google jumps in and makes this its next big hardware category. So got a phone, got a home speaker, got Wi-Fi, got various other bits and pieces for your TV and so on. Um, feels like they're probably going to make their own Android Wear device eventually. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah. And I think they probably have to in order to fill the gaps going to be left by Motorola and others in this space. Yeah, I agree. I think that's happening. And I think Google has the design chops, or at least they've shown to have the design chops to make it interesting, right? Mm -hmm. And and so there yeah. might be something more there. I, I think it would be better for better for customers of smartwatches for sure because it would definitely push Apple the way that Android pushed iOS along and made iOS a lot better. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I hope that's the case because if, yeah. it, you know, Motorola abandoning it and Samsung not being fully committed and not making a bunch of headway 
because Android Wear has been stalled. Um, I, I think that creates a, a, a market in which Apple doesn't feel quite as much anxiety about making the watch better. Right, right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, well, I think we'll park it there for, for that topic for now. I'm sure it's a topic that we'll return to in the future. Um, as always, with everything that we've talked about today, we'll, we'll link to it, um, uh, link to sources and so on, especially for Aaron's question of the week, um, so that you'll have those to refer to. Uh, and we'll wrap up, as usual, with our weekly pick. And it's my turn this time around to recommend something that I've been enjoying recently. And I've been uh, listening and reading a combination, uh, depending on where I am, so listening in the car and then reading when I'm at home, uh, a book called I Invented the Modern Age by an author called Richard Snow. And this is a, a book about, it's a biography of uh, Henry Ford, uh, the founder of the Ford Company, the motor company. And this is part of an effort that I'm making at the moment to, to learn more about the automotive industry as, as part of a project that I'm working on. And uh, it's a fascinating book. And, and the title comes from this conversation that Henry Ford had with somebody, which is sort of representative of the personality that emerges from the book. But um, he was talking about the, um, the uh, books that he'd used as a child. It was these McGuffey readers, I guess, uh, that he had very much enjoyed in his own education and then you know, funded the distribution of many more of them to other people later on and somebody says but in, in sort of objected and said but sir don't you feel like you know this is the modern age and and I guess Henry Ford simply interrupted the guy and said young man I invented the modern age and uh, so that's very much kind of sets the tone of his personality which emerges throughout the book but uh, one of the things I found most interesting is just early on in the book as he's tinkering around with building his first cars is just in those days a single person could understand all the necessary technology well enough to build the whole thing essentially from the ground up and uh, certainly not the case today with all the electronics and everything else that goes into these things but in those days he was able to in the first few years of his career uh, learn about all the different elements whether it's iron working or whether it was uh, steam engines and and uh, engines in general whether it was you know, carburetors and electricity and various other things you know he really was able to learn all the basics and then apply that to building a car. And so uh, really fun uh, biography, very well written, and uh, and I think you'll enjoy it too. And it, as I say, it's called I Invented the Modern Age, and it's by Richard Snow, and we'll, we'll link to that on the website at podcast.beyonddevices, along with the rest of the stuff that we've talked about. So that's it for today. Um, again, I'll, I'll ask that if you enjoy the podcast, you'll recommend it, rate it on iTunes, recommend it in Overcast or whatever other apps you might use. That helps other people to find it. If you're active on social media, so if you use Twitter or if you use Facebook, uh, you might consider promoting the podcast there. Just give us a plug, uh, talk about what you enjoy, perhaps recommend it to other people. That helps other people to find it too and, and helps us uh, find more people to listen, which in turn uh, hopefully helps more people to enjoy it and find it interesting as well. So thanks for being with us again, and uh, we'll hopefully be with you again next week. Thanks.